when we each took our first steps onto this path called our spiritual journey. I don't know about you, but my intention was to open to the truth of life. And at the time, I didn't realize that what I had to open to. It was uh, almost like um, I really didn't see what it meant to open to the truth of life. But I wanted to do that experientially, Um, not because I was just believing blindly what somebody else said and agreeing with them, no matter who it was, or not because I could read something in a book and feel satisfied with that understanding. But I wanted to really understand it experientially, probably like all of you, in one way or another, we might have that feeling. I wanted to understand the breadth and the depth of my own experience of the spiritual path and what that meant, what understandings, what ways I could experience the whole of life in me and therefore in people I met in humanity. So perhaps like many of you, I thought in the beginning that meant to open to the bliss and the beauty of the spiritual life. But someone told me along the way that's, that's probably less than half of what you're going to experience. Because opening to all of life means, and you want to open to only that much, means that you're only opening actually to a part of it. That we really have to open that much and wider, you know, all around us, to be able to really experience the truth of life. So it didn't take me long to realize that that pure intention that I had to open to all of life meant opening to it all, meant opening to the distress of my own heart and mind and the hearts and minds of others, not just on a personal, intimate level, but on a family and community and social and global level. So it also didn't take me long to realize that there was an attitude of my heart and mind that was going to be an ally to me, a great support to me on the path. And it's a part of my heart that already existed, but I really just had to recognize it, acknowledge it, and learn to strengthen it, strengthen it by actually opening to those distressful parts of myself, to those difficult parts of the life that I was born into. So that quality is compassion, and that's the quality that I want to speak about this evening. It's good to give it a voice. We, we can, of course, it's more important to experience it, but when we spend a whole hour just contemplating it, just taking in these understandings and seeing, is that how I can feel about it? Is that how I can open to it? Or where can I open to it? How can I open to it? Where do I feel it really in my own heart and mind, in my own life? So here in this kind of retreat, we're supported by silence, of course, and by a sense of seclusion. Even though we're with a lot of people around us, we, we go about our time together in retreat with a a kind of secluding ourselves through eye door and ear door, not just being distracted by everything, 
but by having a sense of being with ourselves and a, a relative sense of stillness. There's a lot more time we spend in a day that we're just still on a cushion or outside uh, sitting or on our in the dining room being quiet, just, just eating and not doing much else. There's a, a great deal of silence, stillness, and seclusion. And when you bring a sense of mindful awareness to that silence, stillness, and that relative seclusion that we have, it's like putting a magnifying glass on everything that we look at inside our hearts and outside of us. We see so clearly, I don't know about you, but in this time like this when we've been here, we can hear a bird song in a completely different way, in a way of a lot more fullness. Um, we had thunder and lightning this afternoon. And just when I took a little time to be still and quiet in, in my own little place a few blocks from here, it just felt wonderful to be completely with that experience. But also there's times when, you know, I remember stuff in my own life that's hard to be with. And when I open to that, I feel and experience the clarity of that so much more closely, so much more intimately, because of this container that we're in of silence, stillness, seclusion, and what we're applying to it, this mindful awareness. It's like you're in a you're in a still forest and there is a pool there and the pool is your own mind and your own heart and nothing's moving so much and you can sit next to that pool and you can look into that pool and you see your reflection so clearly because of the mirror-like quality of that pool that mindfulness of your own heart You can also see deeply into the pool because there's a lessening of that inner ruffling um, and we can see what's going on on those layers that we don't usually see deep within. So we have this skill that we're developing called mindfulness and it brings about all these experiences that we're normally distracted by in our daily life. And so when we're here, we see it so much more clearly. And this is not easy for us. Um, Someone said, I can't remember who it was, maybe it was Mark Twain. It's like seeing ourselves is not always good news. You know, it brings a lot of, um, oh, is that part of my heart too? You know, I call it the cringing moments. I have a lot of cringing moments, you know, when I say or do something and it's like, oh, I did that, I said that, or I felt that in relationship to somebody else. So it's this ability to see and know ourselves much more clearly than ever before. This magnifying glass of mindful awareness, it's why we need compassion so much because we're open to so much that we see that's distressing in ourselves and around us. So it's also said about mindful awareness that it's like a light that illuminates the darkness, 
So those dark closets or that attic or that basement that we haven't looked into for a long, long time, we bring a light into those places and we see things that have been put away from long ago. Or we, you know, open the closet and things fall out because it was just all stuffed in there uh, so much. So we can't help but see these things at a time like this. It's why on the first or second day of retreat, most people want to go home. Have you felt that yet? (laughs) If you haven't, then you're probably a kind of rare case. But if we don't have this understanding of what's happening with us when we're on retreat like this, we tend to like um, not believe that we can see what we can see and have compassion for it. So often we don't want to feel what we are open to. We want to get rid of it by turning away, by running away, by closing down, by denying what we're seeing, sometimes by striking out at it because it's so hard to bear that we get angry about it, we get impatient with it, because it's so, so hard to bear. So I'm trying to to acknowledge things that happen to us as human beings and bring it out into the light of awareness and actually put words to it so we're not sweeping it under the rug. So even in our Dharma talks, we try to do this. So it's said that, and I experience this truthfully, that compassion is a kind of love that is courageous because compassion takes that uh, beautiful quality of loving-kindness that Mark presented this afternoon. And it takes that quality of loving-kindness, of that quality of goodwill, and it turns to suffering and it faces suffering. So that's the difference between loving-kindness and compassion. Loving-kindness is this general goodwill. But compassion takes that goodwill and turns it specifically towards what's distressing in ourselves and in in life in general. So it's not just love. It's also courage that we need. It's love and courage together that we need for compassion. Because to face what we have to face is no small thing in our lives. And in order to be a complete human being, to really... Uh, acknowledge all of ourselves, it's essential that we do that. So I looked up the word courage in the um, Dictionary of uh, Etymology, and it's derived from the Latin root, from the word cor, C-O-R, which means heart. So that courage comes from the heart. It's not like a brute strength but it really comes from a heartfelt kindness to ourselves and others to be able to face life as it is. So it's kind of like opening to the truth of life with your heart, not with your mind, you know, your intellect or your kind of knowledge, your philosophical knowledge or your psychological knowledge, which is also good, but it's opening with your heart, with just that, that simple, it's actually rather complex, but the simplicity of your heart 
opening to life. So that means that we really experience, we feel the vulnerability of ourselves. It's so hard to bear, especially in these first couple of days when we're so open and we don't realize how open and how vulnerable we are. And we have to, we just have to face it because there's nothing else to do. It's just right there. So opening with our hearts to what we're facing, to be able to face our hearts with the combination of that gentle, loving kindness combined with courage. Without these qualities, the deep habits we have of when we face something difficult, the deep habits are just to turn away or to close down. It's no wonder that a lot of people feel when they're doing loving-kindness practice or compassion practice that they feel like there's a physical feeling in their hearts that's kind of rumbling away or breaking apart like boulders. I felt like that when I first did loving-kindness practice. So we close down, we turn away, we even strike out at what's difficult with, with unkindness, with impatient, impatience towards ourselves or all kinds of ways, frustration. There's strong patterns that um, we do out of habit to run away from life, the life of our hearts. And there's no room for any choice there because we're just following those patterns. We don't give ourselves a chance to do anything else. But we can when we realize that that inherent quality of compassion in our hearts can be acknowledged because we know we have it. We've all experienced it in one way or another, even if we think it's really small. And we can, we can strengthen that. The first uh, place, the first step in strengthening it is acknowledging that we have it. So... Actually, I looked up the word compassion in, in the dictionary of etymology also, and it, it broke uh, it down into two parts. The first part was com, com, which we know, a lot of us know the languages of Spanish and French, and it means together. Con means with or together. And passion, it comes from the word pati in Latin, which means suffer. That was a surprise to me, you know, because we always hear the word passion and we think it's something different. But it actually means suffer. The passion of Christ means the suffering of Christ. So when you put those two words together, compassion, it means connecting. You could see that it means connecting with suffering, really connecting with suffering. So it's one of the most beautiful, powerful, and mysterious emotions that we have as human beings. If you think back to a time when you felt compassion for yourself or for someone else, for an animal, for um, an issue of life, either in your family or in the world, and you really just softened around it, and because of that softening, your heart could come close to it instead of push it away because it was so difficult to be with. 
that softening around it and that opening and that coming close to is that bringing together the heart with suffering and not closing the heart down at all. It's that quality which engenders a very deep connection, that connection that we call in our language empathy. When we can feel the heart or, the, or that deep place of another, but it means more than that. It means feeling ourselves, feeling our own hearts in ways that we never thought of feeling before. We never thought maybe we could get close to that kind of pain inside of us. In some circles I've read it's called divine respect. And I really love that, the way it says that, divine respect that kind of respect that we have for ourselves as human beings. Where we, when we have respect for another, of course there are some actions that we can say, this action is causing harm. These words are causing harm towards another, towards ourself, towards the community. And we cannot deny that. That is the truth. But we still can respect the humanity of that person. That as, as much as that person can, she or he is doing the best they can. Otherwise they'd be doing something different. So when we can have that divine respect to see the goodness in everyone, to see what their potential can be, we can come close to feeling that compassion where we can open to what's difficult in them. So I love this um, poem. Many of you have heard it by Izumi Shikibu. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. Now isn't that divine respect? when we can really acknowledge all parts of ourselves and not push it away because we're ashamed of it or we don't know how to explain it or something like that. So many of you know that I have four children and they're all grown uh, really good human beings, as good as they can be. Of course, as a mother, I always expect more. I can't deny that. But they're okay with that too. So now they're, um, the eldest is 45 and the youngest is 33. I started really young. People wonder, mm, you don't look that old, but I am 65 now. <laughs> so during the course of my own spiritual journey, I had opportunities to have them in the very best care and um, to be able to take retreats that you you are doing now, shorter ones and longer ones uh, also when I was younger. And so when I was raising the children, they're now adults, they keep telling me, don't call me children. When I was raising them, (laughs) I was consumed by, you know, just being able to survive. Like, how was I going to pay the rent and put the food in the refrigerator and be the taxi driver and all of that. You know, how could I really do all of that? And so I did it 
And I did as best as I could my practice every day, even if it couldn't be sitting, it was in movement. It was walking up and down a hallway or folding clothes or washing dishes mindfully as best as I could. So I was in survival mode a lot. And when I went to retreat like you, I was I had to open to parts of myself that I had to shove away because I didn't have time to open that up. I was just trying to be everything, you know, to them and and pretty much to all people when I didn't have enough wisdom with my compassion. So, when I would go to retreat, it would be very difficult for me to face stuff that I wasn't facing before. But layer by layer, you know, I I had to and many layers had to be shown to me in my own unfolding of my own life. And when I took time out, like you, for this spiritual renewal, I had time to acknowledge my deepest and highest aspirations, which weren't, you know, of course I wanted to raise these uh, young adults in the, in the most beautiful way I could, giving them what I could, but I also had my own personal aspirations in, in my life, and, and that was to be fully liberated. I mean, that's not something you would normally hear, but that was my aspiration from when I was in my 20s, and I never forgot that. I did my best to keep up with that bit by bit every time, and I'm still as Manindra would say my, say, my path isn't finished, long way to go yet. But um, I never lost sight of that aspiration. At times I had to open up to places that were covered up so much, it seemed like such a hard shell, that when the shell broke, wow, it was really hard. There was so much energy that it t- took to break that shell of delusion that I had. So it was a place where divine respect could not ignore. It just couldn't ignore those places. They had to be touched with that mindful awareness which is accompanied by compassion, that ally. So it's a feeling, as you probably might describe in your own ways, but just to put words to it, it's an open-hearted feeling where we're deeply connected with ourselves. And, and we want to be, even though it's hard. We want in a good way, in the, in the best description of that word want, in the wholesome description of it. Where we're connected with others and connected with ourselves in ways that um, are deeper and deeper every time we do our practice or every time we know that we can open. It feels like we're including everything about ourselves and about others with goodwill, not with like harshness or condemning or like, I shouldn't feel this way, but realizing that this is what I feel, as harsh as it is in my heart. It is what I feel right now. So there's a caring for that. It's not like a the opposite of caring, which is cruelty. It's not like closing down, but it's that soft-hearted acceptance of whatever is happening in the moment. And I can say for myself that I feel a sense of wholeness when that happens. I feel that 
I'm really um, looking at everything and feeling everything that's possible in that moment. Maybe some things still aren't, but in that moment, this is what's possible. Opening to it all. So in some mysterious way, compassion makes us feel like we're a complete human being because it's that goodwill, that loving kindness that opens to the pain of our hearts, the pain of life. It gives meaning and purpose to us that we can do that when we feel that. Somehow, it, it, you know, maybe we can attain lots of other things in our lives, degrees and accolades and whatever, promotions. But there's nothing like feeling really complete as a human being in one's life. That kind of beats it all in a way. So in, in the Dharma, in, um, in Buddhism, this is called inner wealth. This ability to feel that completeness of that compassion that can open to everything. This is highly, uh, this is a skill that's highly revered as inner wealth. And no one can take that away from us. No one. So I want to connect this, this strength, with the Four Noble Truths. In the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma, the Buddha laid out the Four Noble Truths. He started out with that first truth, which is, uh, in Pali, I want to say it in that ancient language, Dukkha Satcha. It's said in that way, because it's hard to really translate these words, dukkha, satcha. When you look up the word dukkha, which means suffering, you see pages and pages in the Pali Dictionary. Satcha means truth. So really, dukkha, satcha, those two words mean there is the truth of suffering. Now, in some circles, when people write about this as a re- Buddhism as a religion or as a philosophy, this first noble truth is translated as life is suffering. Well, that's really not a very nice invitation to bring things into the Dharma. But we, I think we can all get that meaning, that there is the truth of suffering. Can any one of us deny that here? I mean, just look at our lives so far from yesterday till today. If you can't see it yet, then uh, something's going on. (laughs) There is the truth of suffering. That's what the Buddha started out with because the Buddha was a realist, not a pessimist. (laughs) The other way is pessimism, you know. uh, Life is suffering. But this is realistic. There is the truth of suffering. And he started there because he wanted us to say, let's face this. If we can first face this, this is, like the, this is like the diagnosis of the disease of humanity. There is suffering. And the, the fact is that we're not facing it as much as we can. So the first noble truth is dukkha satcha. There is the truth of suffering. The second noble truth is... This suffering is caused by craving. The third noble truth is there can be an end to craving and there, so that there can be an end to suffering. 
And the fourth noble truth is there is a path to the end of suffering, and that is the Eightfold Noble Path. So I wanted to put that in context. And during the course of your Dharma understanding, you'll, you'll get to know what all of those are, can be filled out to be. So we're not in denial about that. I think when the Buddha pointed out this first noble truth, it was his permission to accept ourselves as human beings, that we're all fallible, that it's, it's really impossible to be perfect when we start out. Maybe there, there are those rare human beings, but I'm not one of them. And uh, it's, it's just this permission to be fallible, to be imperfect, to be who we are, to be human beings. And we can't deny that. In fact, the, the precepts that we take every day, uh, the five precepts of non-harming, was uh, what the Buddha presented because of compassion. Knowing that because we're human beings, we do cause harm in our words and in our deeds. And so we need these reminders to undertake the training to refrain from hurting or uh, acting in ways, uh, speaking in ways that cause hurt or harm. It's because of compassion and because of the acknowledgement that we're all human, that these things happen in our lives. So throughout his life, he taught that it is this very quality of compassion that greatly supports us because we're constantly faced with these habit patterns of mind, of greed and hatred and delusion and ignorance, not, not seeing clearly. So compassion was given a vitally important role that we must really take in and uh, engender that, strengthen that in our own hearts. In fact, it's said that there are not, it's not just about wisdom in the, in the path of the Dharma, but the Dharma has two wings. One wing is the wing of compassion, and the other wing is the wing of wisdom. And without these two wings, it's said that the bird of freedom is not really able to fly. It needs both in order to really fly to freedom. Without the development of compassion, wisdom can be only an intellectual experience and not from the heart. Because it's compassion that opens our hearts and allows us to come close to what is difficult, that first noble truth. There is the truth of suffering. It allows us to come close to that and to be able to really understand why craving is the cause of suffering and how we can come to the end of suffering by coming to the end of craving and to be able to walk the Eightfold Noble Path. So it takes compassion to be able to do all of that. Otherwise, wisdom really cannot be understood totally. And without wisdom, compassion can become pity or grief that's never-ending and never really healing. We can just fall into a pit of pity for ourselves or for others. So this courage and love of compassion helps us really become more truthful with life. That's that first noble 
uh, phrase is a truth, and that we become more truthful with that. There is the truth of suffering. And so can we open to it? That's the question that we're asked. Every moment we're on this cushion, or we're out there doing our walking meditation, or we pause and feel some rumbling of the heart, feel some pain in the body. So we know it with greater clarity, with deepening wisdom. And so the cycle of compassion opening to the wisdom of the Four Noble Truths and that wisdom strengthening more compassion and opening to deeper wisdom, it's a cycle that goes on and on and on until full liberation for every human being. It requires both of those to continue to practice. So whenever here, whenever we're open to something difficult, it can bring great understanding at many levels if we're really able to come close to it and and have a level of calm around it. Just have a level of being able to calmly accept what's going on instead of fighting it with all of our might. But just being able to, even for a moment, see it for what it is. And that really transforms us. I can't name all the moments. There have been so many, or tell you the stories of all of them. But there have been so many moments when I've resisted opening to something, and I've, then I've had to be compassionate with that resistance, and then I felt guilty about what I was feeling, and then had to feel bring compassion to that feeling guilty. And it could go on and on, many layers, but one by one, opening to all of those layers and then feeling a sense of relief that those layers can be touched with that, just that gentleness and that clarity, that courage of compassion. And it brought so many understandings of my life, acceptance of my life, of the karmic stream unfolding or showing me this or that, that just helped me to surrender to it and not fight it anymore. This is a beautiful poem by Khalil Gibran, the importance of, about the importance of pain. Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding even as a stone of the fruit must break open, that its heart may stand in the sun, so must you know pain. And if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life, and your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. So that pain that we open to can really bring a lot of wonderful things to us wonderful understandings, wondrous moments. So what are we faced with? And in this electronic age, it's really in our face day to day. Just yesterday, I unsubscribed to the New York Times. It was just getting too TMI, too much information. I'm just going to let it go for about a month. Um, And there's so much to read about that, you know, sometimes I feel my heart is too vulnerable and I have to protect it. So what we hear about is this shifting and changing planet that we live on, on, 
the global environment that we're constantly informed about. And I want to be informed about that, so there are other channels I can go to to be informed about that. The melting icebergs, the ocean currents that are changing. Where I live in Hawaii, we really feel it a lot. Hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes, and how it affects human lives and animals and nature on Earth. I was just recently um, doing some short hiking with my husband in um, Rainier, Mount Rainier National Park, and the and the rangers there said that there's there's about thirty plus um, um, glaciers there, and they're melting at the fastest rate they've ever seen them melt before. The rivers are just really strong, strongly flowing now. So. It, it brought it. I was right there with it, you know, and, and heard it and saw it and felt it. And, you know, have to open my heart to that change in the bigger global picture of the world. It's how it is. That doesn't mean that I don't do anything about it. Of course, I do everything I can about it uh, with my voice, with my pocketbook, with my influence. And we should, we could all do that. We see how this changing planet is shifting in so many ways, and it's hard to bear. There's religious and social and political, cultural and racial inequities all around us. The state of the of the world is um, really can be hard to bear, and sometimes we bear it by ignorance, by not really facing it. And even though I said to you that I just unsubscribed to the New York Times, <laughs> I also at times, like I've been in retreat like you, uh, every year I take at least a month of my own retreat. And one time I came out of retreat and I heard that there was this terrible um, tsunami in Japan. And I only knew about it when I got out of retreat. So I made myself look at what happened in Japan because I didn't want to ignore what was going on. And I, I wanted to see the, the times when people were running away from the tide and they were trying to save their families. And I let my heart be broken um, because I wanted to face that. But I also know that I need a balance. So of course there's the emotional tsunamis happening in our own hearts, in our own families. I heard about some of them from some of you and thank you for your honesty and your open-heartedness. And um, it's really hard to open to all of that with courage. And, and sometimes we have to kind of allow ourselves to be honestly overwhelmed by it before we, we bring in that, that balance that we need to be able to face it, that balance of compassion and wisdom. So we carry all of that on our cushions and we become more honest with ourselves because we can't help it. Mindfulness is so like that magnifying glass. We're, we're seeing life through an electronic um, magnifying glass in a way. Just see all the layers and levels in ways we've never seen before. We see all the fear and anger and attachment to our own opinions and viewpoints of our life. To, we see confusion 
and judging ourselves and others, helplessness, guilt, and resentment. It's so hard to open to all of that. And I want to put a voice to it because I don't want to ignore the elephant in the room, you know, in my room and in this room. It's happening. It's here. And right there is where we can remember. When we feel that, when we're sitting here, it's where we can remember to bring compassion. Sometimes it's just whatever we know that word to mean. And I'm going to give an understanding of the full terrain of compassion. If we can bring that courageous heart right there to that moment and be with it, with that sense of balance and safety, not with falling into a pit of pity or overwhelming grief. I mean, sometimes that has to happen. And not by ignoring it either, by pushing it away, but really by being with that sense of feeling that overwhelming sadness and just being with it. Sometimes it helps just to say, this is sadness. It's like having a, a, um, uh, a spiritual witness there to say, this is sadness, this is uh, guilt, this is the judging mind. And just being able to name it. I don't know, I've, I've heard stories about where, um, you know, these knights in shining armor would go to the cave where there is a dragon And um, in order to let the dragon come out of the cave and kind of just be docile and not attacking, you'd have to know the name of that dragon. You'd have to be able to name it, and then it it would appear and not attack. So that's what I find helpful about being able to name these places so that we can really call them for what they are, and not cover them up with helplessness. Sometimes it takes just an out-breath and softening all around that moment where we feel that sense of helplessness and that sense of safety, unsafeness, where we can feel that sense of safety by acknowledging, I'm here. I'm not going to abandon this moment. I'm here with this moment being really present with that moment, relaxing, breathing out, softening around it, around what's happening. So to touch those part of ourselves that we're not proud of, uh, feelings that we think shouldn't be there or that we shouldn't be having, feelings of shame and failure, feelings of prejudice about ourselves, about others, That's the very place to bring that soft-hearted attention, which is compassion. We don't even have to say those words. We can just say soft-hearted attention. I remember once driving down, um, there's this place called Haleakala Highway. It's just really a a little four-lane place. from where I live, down the mountain. We live on the side of a mountain called Haleakala. And when I was driving, one of my uh, children, um, Therese, she's the youngest one, and just got married. And she was, um, we were going down, she was in um, high school then. And I was kind of not feeling really happy about the traffic and 
sort of swearing under my breath and things like that. And um, yeah, I can say four-letter words too. You might think I'm really soft-hearted, but I can get that way. And so uh, she's taken a couple of retreats here. And um, when I was going down the hill and growing away, she said, Mom, Mom, soft note, anger, anger. (laughs) So that's what we can do, just softly noticing what's going on. I've met so many people who talk to me about realizing strengths that they never had just by coming close to what was really difficult to come close to. And I have to remember that because there are still times in my life when I experience things that, well, I never experienced this kind of suffering before. I never really, this particular layer of karmic stuff that's coming out, never saw that before, never came close to that before. And I have to remember that I give this Dharma talk and that I've heard it from people that they never realized they could face anything with so much strength until they brought compassion to the moment. So compassion is such a beautiful quality that we can have. Um, I have a friend who had to face something really difficult. And she gave me permission to read this to you. She was, um, she was told she had cancer and she had to face something that was um, her life. Didn't know whether she'd be able to really continue living. So she wrote this letter to me, this email to me, and it was preceded by a poem that I'm sure most of you have heard, but uh, it's worth saying again. It's called The Guest House. Have you heard that? The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if there are a crowd of sorrows, who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some future delight. So this is by Rumi. So she says in her email, In one week I'll be going to the hospital for surgery that will deprive me of about one-third of the organ responsible for allowing my body to receive the breath of life. The surgery will also be the means for determining whether I have a non-invasive versus an aggressive form of cancer growing in my lungs. The stakes are high. Rumi reminds me that all of this may be some kind of a blessing with its own gifts to offer. My house feels swept clean. I'm somehow feeling more fully alive with the life-threatening diagnosis right here in my face. I'm re-examining my relationship to every aspect of my life and asking the questions, how does this serve me and all that is of value to me? What is of value to me anyway? I don't have all the answers, but the process has been enlivening, energizing, and sometimes fun. 
and so I plan to welcome my next guest honorably. And I want to say that these weren't just words. This was truly her attitude as I watched her go through this. And so up to now, she's fine, but we'll see, she says. So as we continue our journey to open with this kind of honesty, facing all these vulnerabilities with that strength and loving kindness, can we keep our hearts open? Can we keep that ready ability to just face what we need to face, to not give up, to not close down, to not turn away? This is what's asked of us. We're asked to have a clear view of how it actually is um, and not how we just dream about how we want it to be or how we think it should have been for us, but to really open to how it is. Here's something from um, a wonderful writer I admire, Agnes Au. She's uh, written this in the Shambhala Sun. It's about allowing those layers of ourselves to be exposed. So she says, I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace and in so doing to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. An unfiltered life where we're not putting any veils over us. We're not trying to see through rose-colored glasses or through the glasses of self-pity, but just taking off the glasses, anything, any glasses. I used to come in to interview with my own teacher, and he would say, what color glasses are you wearing today, Yogi Kamala? So just to take them off and to see life as it is rather than how we think it should be for ourselves. This really helps us. So granted, with our practice, we may not radically change the world out there, but we can change our inner world. And this is where that world out there starts for everyone. What we put out there from what comes in here, that's what makes the world. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, Compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear or see them as right. It just stops those atrocities from continuing in our own hearts. So what's the terrain of compassion? It's good to know. If compassion is kind of the middle path, what happens when it falls off to one side? When it veers off to one side and it's not really compassion, it goes to kind of pity or a grief that's so, so deep that we can't get out of it. It's like falling in a a pit of quicksand. And those who might have compassion for us without knowing it might also jump into that quicksand to try to save us. But they too, because of their own grief, will sink. So we must have the courage to be able to stand on firm ground and to know what's going on. Not to kind of sink into what is called the near enemy of compassion. The near enemy of compassion is that 
unwholesome kind of grief. Not the grief that leads to healing because we're letting it go, but it's a grief that we hold in and we're not letting go because we're feeding it with more and more pity for ourselves and more and more we can't do it, helplessness. So we have to watch out for that kind of overwhelming grief. I remember one time uh, being with my daughter in the hospital and um, she was going through a lot of pain and I was kind of standing on the back wall watching her. It was so painful for her to go through this and it was a, a cancer scare for her too. But she came through it. And so I was against the wall and I was just really tired from staying up at night and I was kind of slinking down the wall and she said, Mom... Mom, don't go there. I really need you. You know, I was really kind of sinking in that grief. So I really had to pull myself up and just with that strength to be able to face what she was going through. So that's the near enemy of compassion. It's called that overwhelming grief, pity. The far enemy is called cruelty. And that's pushing away or even striking out at someone that uh, is causing us suffering or even, you know, causing others suffering. I remember um, some time ago someone causing a dear family member of mine some suffering. And I was really upset and angry about that and angry at that person, the cruelty that that person put towards one of my family members, my younger family members. And so I was burning with that feeling of anger in my own heart. When I could see that as cruelty, I didn't act it out, although I wanted to, with words and with deeds sometimes. You know, I could see myself doing something, but I I couldn't go there, of course. But... um, I didn't act it out, but I felt it. I felt that cruelty in my own heart. When I could feel it in my own heart, somehow that was a connection that was empathetic, feeling what that person was feeling. Or possibly, I don't really know, but it seemed like it with that action that was taken. So being able to really feel that person's cruel, my own cruelty helped me to see that's what that person is feeling or similar, and then I could come close to that person. It brought about some feeling of compassion. It said that one of the proximate causes for compassion to arise is suffering. So when we see that suffering in ourselves, we can see it in others maybe more clearly. So it doesn't condone the action or the ill will of another but it really sees it as suffering. So how can we get close to that? It's really hard, especially for those that aren't so close to us, for those we don't really love or that in our, who are in our family. But it does give us an opportunity to transform, to... Uh, see them differently. Yes, to see that it is an act of cruelty, but to also see that we can handle it differently. 
So, compassion is a mysterious and a beautiful and a powerful attitude. It's a very powerful, wholesome emotion that we all have that's in us already. It really just takes acknowledging it and giving ourselves the opportunity to come close to what's painful, to come close to distress in ourselves and in others, and see if that strength of love, goodwill, that strength of courage can open to that moment. Sometimes it takes just one moment to realize that we have it, that it isn't that hard to be with what's hard. So I'd like to end with this um, beautiful poem by David White. And um, this is a, it's a long poem, and I'm just taking an excerpt from it that has to deal with this subject. It doesn't interest me if there is one God or many gods. I want to know if you know despair and can see it in others. I want to know if you're prepared to live in the world with its harsh need to change you. I want to know if you know how to melt into that fierce heat of living, falling toward the center of your longing. I want to know if you're willing to live day by day with the consequences of love. So let's sit for a moment and let all those words just dissolve. an hour, half an hour of walking, and after that, uh, invite you to come back for the chanting and the last sitting of the day.